Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Welcome to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting from two shipping containers in lovely Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm Carmen DeVito of Groundworks, Inc. Um, Ordinarily, you would be hearing my co-host Alice Marcus Krieg's voice right now with us, but she's not in the studio today because she's very pregnant and potentially giving birth at any moment. Um, Groundworks designs and builds gardens in and around New York City, and our show aims to bring some culture to horticulture, and today we have a very special guest with us. Margaret Roach. In her former life, Margaret was editorial director for Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia, as well as an editor for the New York Times, fashion and garden editor at Newsday, and author of one of my favorite gardening books, A Way to Garden, which was named Best Garden Book of the Year by the Garden Writers Association of America. In 2008, Margaret made the life-altering decision to leave New York City, an enormously successful career for a new life and a new path in Copic Falls, New York. Her memoir about that experience is what our show is about today, and it's called And I Shall Have Some Peace There. The book has just been released in paperback this month by Grand Central Books. Welcome, Margaret. How are you? Nice to speak to you, finally. (laughs) Yes, we wanted to have you on the show for so long. I'm so glad that you could join me today. So the book was amazing, and I have like numerous um, yellow post-it notes marking it up. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. With parts that I like. (laughs) So let's dive right in. Um, The decision to leave your your very high-profile job at Martha Stewart was was kind of a long one um, in coming, populated by a series of what you kind of describe as quote-unquote wake-up calls. One of the ones that I found really uh, interesting was this incident over the little-known and rare plant called Hylonicon japonicum, if I'm I'm pronouncing it correctly. You know, botanical Latin was a a language to record things. It wasn't ever a spoken language, so you can pronounce it any way you want. Okay, (laughs) great. (laughs) Yeah, it was a a scientific written language for keeping track of things. Clematis, clematis. You can say (laughs) hylonicon. Hylomecan, Japonicum. Nobody knows the plant anyway, so you can say whatever you want, especially with this one. Okay, good. Well, it was such an interesting and funny, bittersweet moment in the book. Tell, tell our listeners a little bit about what happened that day. Well, um, I, I had bought a plant. Uh, the backstory is I had bought a plant many years before, maybe 10 plus years before, at the New England Wildflower Society. It wasn't an, an American wildflower, it was a Japanese wildflower and it was a very rare plant and I had never heard of it I couldn't find it in books whatever it wasn't for sale so I treasured this thing for many years and as you know with things that you treasure whether it's sometimes a person or a thing or including a plant sometimes you can hold it a little bit too close and too tight and you can kind of suffocate it 
Yes. And <laughs> so, so this turned out to be, this plant taught me a lesson in that type of too close, too tight um, behavior. Um, I, uh, I was out in the yard and a friend was in the front, I was in the backyard and a friend was in the front yard and he was um, gardening, we were gardening, and I came around the corner toward the front and this place, this spot in the front yard where my precious plant of many years, this rare thing that made me feel very special and that I treasured, you know, <laughs> so tightly um, and dearly. It was, there was a hole in the ground where my plant had been, and he was standing there with a pocket knife cutting it up into little pieces. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> and um, and, and he's, a, he's one of the finest gardeners I've ever known, and so it wasn't that he was doing something malicious or crazy. He was like, oh, hey, she should have more of this plant. Let's move it around the garden, you know. But I was so uptight and so, like, everything had to be just because mm-hmm. my life was out of control. So this was the kind of thing, you know, I like to have certain things that I held on to tight, right, that mm-hmm. I knew where they were and what they were going to do that were predictable. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, I started screaming. He started screaming. <laughs> I started crying. I ran in the house. I slammed the door. You know, it was that kind of thing. But it was that type of a moment right. watching yourself lose control over trying to exert control over, of course, uncontrollable things yeah. <laughs> that taught me a lesson, I guess, or one of the many lessons. And I also, I loved your description of that Sunday night anxiety, that feeling that, um, as you describe it, your own time is running out and you're going to be hurled into work, you know, the next day. I think so many people can can relate to that feeling. And And you say that once you moved up there, it took you a long time to realize that your time was finally your own, this sort of right of self-determination. Is that kind of what you were working for up there at first? I think so. I think, I think that um, particularly for a weekend gardener, which I had been for 21 years, driving back and forth every weekend to my garden. So in a way, it was like a long-distance love affair where we were separated every week, most of the week, and we only got to be together a little bit on the weekends. So Sundays were particularly, you know, the reentry waiting to go back to work, you know, that kind of thing. So it was especially for a weekend gardener. I think it was especially poignant and charged. Um, sure. And, and, and now, I, I mean, I, the thing that I, why I changed my career, you know, I didn't retire because I, nobody can afford to retire anyway, but <laughs> I wasn't old enough to retire almost, <laughs> but not quite. Um, but I wanted, I feel like I, I felt like I had sort of stifled my personal creativity. Um, and that's one of the things that happens when you have, um, you know, a lot of promotions at work. Sometimes you end up managing more than you end up creating. You become, yes. you know, five steps removed from the actual genesis of ideas and the implementation of those ideas. And I missed that. And for me, I missed writing, something I had done very early in my career and not done in the years since I had become an executive manager. Mm-hmm. So uh, so what I do now is try to support myself by writing and by, you know, whether it's on blogging or whether it's articles or whether it's books, try to support myself um, in a different way that gets at my personal creativity. So have to get up every morning and, um, you know, kind of work, work, work. And, and I work every day. And actually, I think I work more days than <laughs> Stuart. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, that but, seems but hard okay to believe. But <laughs> it's my little business or a monkey right. business, as the case may be. But it's my thing, you know. And that feels good. Yeah. That and I, good. I think when people 
um, start working for themselves. I worked for many other people before I started Groundworks with my partner, Alice. And we've been together now 10 years working. It, you do have a certain sense of, you, you have to be self-motivated. You have to have, you know, the passion and the desire to, you know, no one's going to give you deadlines. Like, you have them. You know, you're, they're self-created, right. you know. And it's a, it's a very different way of working, and especially when you're working from home. You know, you're in your home. Tricky, you know, yeah. It yeah, is and you, you know, it takes discipline. You yeah. know, uh, yeah. So, so that's good. But, uh, but, uh, and I mean, I've uh, every day I get to look out the window, and that's the pay. Even yeah. on the days when I don't make as much money as you know uh, as I'd like to, or sure. you know what I mean, in between yeah. uh, projects and so forth, uh, yeah. the, the other kind of payoff. Uh, the, the real pay is that I get to look out the window and, for the first time, see the garden. In all of its subtle incarnations that come in the course of a year, because again, I was up there, I was up here 52 weeks a year, uh, 52 weekends a year, yeah. 50 weekends, let's say, and maybe a couple of weeks of vacation at the most. Mm-hmm. That was all. So I didn't see things like this morning I saw, and here it is, you know, only February in Zone 5, mm-hmm. um, the first Aranthus hymalis, the, um, the winter aconites came up today. Those are wonderful. And there's already Galanthus, the snowdrops, and mm-hmm. um, a lot of the... Uh, I've been watching the last three or four weeks, very, very early, shouldn't have happened. I've been watching the bud sheaths, the coverings of flower buds, come off my April blooming things like Daphne mazerium or um, Coralopsis spicata, the winter hazel. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the earliest bloomers have shed their bud sheaths so that they're unprotected out there Yikes. in February. That's, so, you know, these subtleties yeah. are yeah. not, like, this is not the big obvious bloom of the major garden of spring or whatever, but it's very intimate and sexy and beautiful, and I never saw that stuff, yeah. right, unless it happened on the weekend. Yeah, and, you know, we can't control that <laughs> very well. No, absolutely not, So especially now. Yeah. <laughs> we can't control anything. With no, the this year is going to be very, a very interesting growing season, I have to, I have to admit. Well, you know, you had um, in the book you were you talked a lot about you know that you had, were meaning to to leave your job for a long time, and you describe yourself as the girl who cried Martha, sort of one more year, then I can do it, uh-huh. you know, and then the incentives kept getting bigger, right? So, what what, what was there sort of like a moment, uh, Margaret, that you finally just decided and felt that you you had enough, you know, financially, or you had enough on the other side, like enough work, you know, that you just did it. Well, I, I had to, I had, I had to, I had the illusion for many years that there was the concept of enough was an actual tangible thing, you know, that mm-hmm. there was an enough moment mm-hmm. in all those things. I had enough. You know, and, and it could be savings in your 401k, or it could mm-hmm. be I had enough um, experience where I felt confident that I could, or, or contact where I felt that I could support myself outside a corporate environment, yeah. or it could be that I had enough relationships in my life that I knew would be with me here too sometimes, that I wouldn't be like, mm-hmm. whatever, the enough thing, right? The yeah. elusive enough thing. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> and, you know, I, I, I just... There, there was a moment when I finally reached that straw that breaks the camel's back thing, you know, that happens. Mm-hmm. But it, it was, it was definitely cumulative. I mean, the moment was that there were going to be more administrative changes, 
at work, and we had just been through a big rebuild of the company after some difficulties earlier on, and, mm-hmm. and you know, it was time for, like, the next sort of five-year plan, let's say. It wasn't literally. If, and right, I thought, right. if I don't excuse myself right now, you know, at the commencement of this next, you know, key managers doing this next plan together, if I don't excuse myself now, I'm going to be here for quite a number of years again because you know yes. you make a commitment yes you make a commitment yeah. so it was really it was re- but it, it wasn't about that moment it was about realizing i guess that there's never enough of anything and what there's especially not enough of is time because we're ephemeral like all the plants outside and all the creatures uh, like these insects that yesterday in that in this very april-like weather here, um, even in the north, <laughs> they all hatched out. There were just millions of tiny insects floating in the on the breeze, in the sunshine, sunlight. And of course, they're going to be really ephemeral because they're not going to live very long after it gets really cold and snows tonight. <laughs> yeah, but there's not enough time even in a human life. So saying I don't have time, I don't have time, I don't have time, and postponing chasing some sort of concept of enoughness about, yes. you know, again, a 401k balance or whatever the heck it is. It just, I guess I got old enough to understand that I was doing, the, I was chasing the wrong thing. And I went for the, the quality of, you know, kind of, again, creativity, being able to be creative again, um, the connection to nature, and at a cost. I mean, there was a great cost to making the decision, but, you know, I have kind of a sense of equanimity about that, I guess. Um, so... And that's you know, and I was always I was always capable. I mean, I figure out ways to make a living, even here. <laughs> yes, we had um, you know Bob Highland on the show uh, many months ago, and we mm-hmm. were talking about something similar. He's he's also a good friend of yours. Um, sure, and we've exactly we've um, many we've spent many 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 hours in our last fifteen or twenty years of knowing each other, talking about life transitions and is it okay? Is it safe? Is, have I done this for long enough, et cetera? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We, he talked about that a little bit too and said, you know, every 10 years I just um, need to change and do something a little bit different. You know, he was talking about selling the nursery and the land and the house that they built, sure. you know? So that's what makes the story so interesting is that I think so many people feel trapped and wish that they could do that. You right. know, um, and, and it's it's really great to share your story. Um, well, we talked a little bit about the, the plants and animals, but I want to get a little bit more into that. Um, there were many animal, what I, my term, animal familiars in your book. Um, but the animal familiars? Familiars. <laughs> um, but the most surprising for me was how large the snake figured into your story. <laughs> Can you tell us um, about the five foot, timber rattlesnake that you found outside on your doormat because aren't you like terrified of snakes i do i have ophidiophobia which is the (laughs) fear of snakes i do have a bad case of it always have um but you know even in the garden of eden there was (laughs) (laughs) so you you don't get to live with some big old apple trees and you know sunsets and sunrises and all that kind of good nature stuff without some creatures and Mm -hmm. Of course, snakes, reptiles, and and also amphibians, I'm crazy about frogs, um, are a sign of a healthy garden, you know, a garden that's not um, chemical-laden or, um, you know, a a place where the the systems are working. So it's a good thing to have snakes. Um, But it wasn't that great a thing (laughs) 
the day that he was on the doormat. <laughs> I was just picturing it. I could visualize it. And I don't know what I would have done. I really well, don't know. nothing like a rattlesnake compared to, you know, you know I see garter snakes and milk yeah, snakes and yeah. other kinds of green snakes and uh, all those kinds of things yeah. all the time. But there's nothing like a rattlesnake. A rattlesnake is so distinctive, um, you know, besides its pattern and so forth. Yeah. It's so muscular is the word I can use. It's like the form of a muscular man, like a man who, you know, I have very little wrist, so I say man not to be sexist, but because for me, uh, a lot of times women's wrists are smaller yeah. and less muscular. The forearm mm-hmm. is less muscular in a woman. Yeah. And a man who's done, like, jackhammer work, you know what <laughs> yes, I mean? Like, yes. like it's, it's yeah. really muscular. So it's a totally different-looking animal. Um, so he, I, walked, I was walking out of the house one evening to go eat supper with some new friends I'd made when I first moved here. It was only a few months into being here. And I swung open the door, and there he was, and he's you know, lifted his tail and shook it. And um, it was, it was not great. And I was raw at the time because I was learning about my new life and I had taken quite a leap into this um, new life and I wasn't really settled yet, you know, like babies and, you know, kids, they need structure. And there wasn't a whole lot of structure when I first got here. I had to invent the structure. So I was a little bit rattled myself. Yeah. There he was. (laughs) But the the thing is, I've learned about a lot of the uh, animals here is that if you can kind of get past that, and obviously not if you're in mortal danger or anything, but if you can get past the initial, like I have bear and a lot of fox. I mean, not that fox are scary, but there's lots of animals mm-hmm. and so mm-hmm. forth. Is that they also come with a lot of, they, they can be very teaching, you know, they can be very instructive. And um, the snakes are, you know, they're twice-born animals. They're animals that um, a lot of snake species lay eggs, and then the eggs hatch. So just like the frogs are twice-born, you know, in yes. the Eastern religions and so forth. You know, there's this sense of like, they make their first start in one environment or in one condition, and then they get another start. And well, that was very much what I was going through, right? I was not the same person. I wasn't in the same life. I no. So I ended up finding, like, peace with them. I mean, again, I don't want him on the doormat. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> or in the house. <laughs> but, I, but I'm aware that they're here all the time. You know, they're around, and I could see one at any time, and I have to be okay with that and tried to kind of learn what things we had in common rather than our differences. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, we have to take a little bit of a break. Sure. Um, uh, for just a couple of minutes. And when we get back, I want to talk about the human um, companions that you've uh, met and, and their relationships up there since you've moved there full time. Stay tuned to We Dig Plants. That's all right, but all the shit was ill. The following program was sponsored by S. Wallace Edwards and Sons. Summertime is not the only time when barbecue is welcome. At S. Wallace Edwards and Sons, Sam Edwards has been working his magic on ribs, briskets, pit-cooked pulled pork, and much, much more. Add a few of their sides and the party is complete. Entertaining has never been so easy. To order, go to virginiatraditions.com.
Hi, welcome back to Weedic Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. Our guest today is Margaret Roach, gardener, former executive director at Martha Stewart Living Omnimedia, and author of the book, And I Shall Have Peace There, her memoir of giving up the corporate life for, as she calls it, her own dirt road. Welcome back, Margaret. How are you again? <laughs> yes. So let's talk about herb and flora. Okay, first of all, you didn't make up those names, right? Your herb. neighbors. <laughs> herb. Herb. Well, like Herbert, should. but herb. Herb yeah. and but flora. But it, it's spelled H-E-R-B. Mm-hmm. Herb, herb and flora are your your neighbors. Um, they, and are my cl- they are my, um, the, the first neighbors as a weekender 25, 26 years ago, the first people that I met here, they're year-round residents for now about 55 years. Okay. Um, they've been on this road, and they raised their kids here and so forth, and they're maybe a little less than half a mile down the road. Um, so, yes, Herb and Flora, and I did not make up their name, and my other neighbor's <laughs> name is Robin, like the bird. That's pretty amazing. Well, <laughs> so I'm the, the only one without a, without a botanical a or animal name. name. <laughs> that might change. Um, <laughs> I know, you never know. <laughs> well, they in the book, um, they figure pretty importantly into your sort of country education. Can you tell us a little bit of how that friendship sort of evolved over your, you know, t- part-time? Well, and then I mean, I, it was very, very, very many years ago that her, while I was still a weekender, saw me trying to um, burn brush. We were allowed <laughs> to burn brush. I don't, I don't mean I was doing something wrong, but yeah. I just couldn't get the fire started. Mm-hmm. And he finally was so sick of, he was driving by <laughs> doing his chores and, and you know, things. And um, he finally got so sick, I think, of watching me. Uh, he reached out, you know, he stopped and he introduced himself and he helped me. And it was, it has, it was the first, and again, this is probably 23, 24 years ago, the first of so many times where Herb's had to rescue me and some of my um, pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> um, Herb knows how to do everything and I don't, but thanks to our long friendship now over more than a couple of decades, I know how to do a lot more things than I used to. And the right way, by the way, because he does them the right way. So um, Flora, uh, in the early years, taught me home canning, um, you know, long before the latest um, resurgence of interest in that. So, you know, how to make jams and pickles and, you know, prepare things for freezing and, you know, blanch this and dry that and so on and so forth. So they really were, from the beginning, um, almost like surrogate parents and, yeah. and, um, and, and just truly the spirit of neighbors, or rural neighbors in particular. Yeah, I loved how, you know, I mean, when you live in the city, you know, or any urban environment, your neighbors are so close, you know, you're stacked one on top of one another next sure. door. And, and you, you, can, you can really hear and smell, uh, you know, can smell if your neighbors are cooking bacon, for yeah. instance, if you're in the city. Here, I have no idea what Herb and Flora are doing down the road, <laughs> visually speaking. Right. But I know that at any time, if they need me or I need them, there would not be a moment's hesitation to, to, to jump in and, and help. You know what I mean? And yeah, and, different. That, and that's a very big change. I mean, because in the city, you know, it's it's a... It's sort of cliched, but you know, in New York, you, your neighbors are you know you know you live in a building for thirty years and you don't know the person like next right. door or upstairs. You know, right? And since I've come here, I have full time. I have um, you know come to know more of my neighbors better, and we don't really have neighbors in the sense of physical proximity. So right. you can't I can't see anybody, but right. I know where I know who everybody is now, you know, with in a much I mean I'm much more a part of the community than I ever have been before. Yes, I um in the book you kind of say you have the spirit of a lone wolf, a heron, an eagle, a spider, all kind of, you know, <laughs> individual type lone 
animals and you don't travel in packs except for earning purposes. But eventually you did, as you said, start opening up to the larger community of Copic Falls. Well, and- right. And I think I, I have, I've always lectured, I've lectured for more than 20 years about mm-hmm. gardening and mm-hmm. I've um, always spent time doing that, like commun- connecting with other gardeners mm-hmm. to spread the word and share knowledge and those types of things. So I've, I've always gone out into big groups um, but but when I'm working, when I'm thinking, when I'm, I, I like to entertain myself, and mm-hmm. I'm kind of I'm so, kind of solitary. But I'm also very social. So, for instance, I really look forward to maybe twice a month. I will meet a close friend at my favorite local restaurant, you know, which is maybe 15 minutes away. And I really look forward to that, or maybe it's two friends or three friends at a time. I really get excited about it. It's so special, but mm-hmm. I don't do it every day. Right. And right. out of every day, I read, I listen to music, I do something that has to do with the garden, and it could be, you know, um, planting it or ordering seeds or working out in it. Mm-hmm. Um, I write every day uh, something. Um, you know, I mean, so, so I have a, an interior life and I have also an exterior life, but, um, but I'm not, I'm not um, what's the word? I'm not antisocial. I'm no. just, I need a lot of quiet time in order to do what I do, which is that I write and I garden. And, you know, those are things that take a lot of, Alone time. I know. Um, I, you know, I make gardens for other people. Hundred, I've made yes. hundreds of gardens, and yet on the weekends, all I want to do is garden. And my family is like, "Why don't you just stop?" You know. Mm-hmm. And I was like, "But this is for me." You know, right. this is different. You well, know? and I think it's. I don't. And I think it's. Um, you know, it's really for me. It's a meditative practice. It's a. a re- it's a. It restores me and so yeah. forth. So it's. It, yeah. It's. It's. It's not. It's not some kind of hobby like um, stamp collecting or something. No, I mean, or just to pass the time or anything. No, I mean, it, no. It's, I learn everything as I was saying before. You know, learning about what the different. I mean, like last fall, I from like August on until frost, I was. I be, realized how little I knew about caterpillars, and every time I would be outside, I would see a different kind of caterpillar, and I would rather than squish them, which is the instinct with the voracious leaf eaters, you know. Yeah. I would not, and I would take a picture. I'd go get my camera. I'd take a picture of them, and then I'd ID them in a in a reference book on, or a reference guide online, and then I eventually got a really great caterpillar book for the Northeast, and. And I would figure out what they were doing and why they were doing it and start to learn. So for me, every little tiny thing, as tiny as a caterpillar, can lead to this, like, hours of adventure, mental adventure. So I could be, I wish I had a whole other lifetime <laughs> yeah. to, um, to, to do that, to pursue those things. Um, birds, caterpillars, butterflies, plants, yeah. you name it. Frogs. And <laughs> even growing garlic. I loved... Um in fact, yeah. I, I want to read a passage about about that um, a little. That on page two thirty three of your book, you describe um, something as simple and, and sort of ubiquitous that everybody can pick up at a market: uh, garlic. Growing garlic, you describe as is dating with an eye to marriage. Mm-hmm. And um, here's what you what uh, you say. 
What I like best about plants is that they contain not just the germplasm that will become a future harvest, but also the nut of a clever lesson. This is why I tend to anthropomorphize them and regard them among my closest mentors. From garlic comes the discipline of selection, learning how to choose to emphasize the best traits, like an inclination to root well in while downplaying the less desirable. Good guidance for whatever creature we find ourselves incarnated as this time around. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that, when I started saving, uh, you know, I started growing uh, German um, extra hardy garlic, oh mm-hmm. gosh, more than 10 years ago. And I've been selecting like a breeder would. Mm-hmm. I've been selecting. And what I was selecting for was the biggest cloves in the, and biggest heads. Mm-hmm. And so that was all I would plant with my biggest cloves each year from my biggest heads of the previous year's harvest mm-hmm. is what I would use as my seed crop. And now I have, I mean, people, I have a very good garden friend, expert friend, who's from an Italian background and her- Italian heritage, and he knows his garlic, and he's, he's like, I have never seen anything like your garlic, but that's <laughs> a decade of selecting for that, yeah. that trait within that particular, um, you know, variety. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it is, it's, it's, I'm definitely married for life to German extra hardy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, in, um, in your book, you also quote the author May Sarton, who says, we are myth makers of ourselves. How, how did you realize, and, and at what point, um, well, when you moved up there, that you wanted to, to get your story down and share it? Well, I mean, I think that was the fact that I felt a little bit invisible in my corporate life, because, again, being the manager as opposed to being the the person whose personal creativity was being expressed. You know, I was a facilitator more than than the creator, right? Yes. I was working for a big brand, a big company, in all the different places I, I had worked. So, um, so I think that getting my story down, again, the return to personal creativity was all about that. Mm-hmm. Um, Sartan, I was interested. I've loved her work for a long time, but I hadn't read it in a long time. I would read it gosh, when I was in my 20s, I think. And um, I had all her books, but I hadn't looked back at them. And so when I was trying to figure out in that early stage we talked about before, who am I? Uh Uh-oh, now I'm not, you know, the Margaret Roach, the mroach at MarthaStewart.com anymore. Who am I? Who am I? Trying to find that identity, the new identity. Um, I did. I felt like I needed a story of myself. You know, I needed to tell myself a new story about who I was. And, of course, that's like a myth. And there's so many stories uh, in, in literature mm-hmm. um, about heroes' journeys and whatever. And I don't yeah. mean to over make mine sound any grander than, than you know, it's just my little story. Right. Um, but, but, yeah, so, so we do. To find kind of peace and comfort with ourselves, we need to have our story of us. Right, and yeah. then, so a myth that we can live with, you know, that say this is who I think I am, and this is the role I think I'm serving at this time, and you know, you have to be comfortable with it. So, so. I'm sure you've gotten all kinds of reactions from friends, <laughs> family. I, tell us a little bit about that when when you when you made the decision and you made the move. What kind of you know feedback did people give you on both sides? Well, most people in advance thought that I would be very lonely and depressed and they right. didn't want me to move here, particularly when I started uh, my life here, my full-time life here, in the beginning of winter. That's brave. <laughs> and people were like, oh, you can't do that, wait till the spring, blah, blah, blah. Right. And I said, what, what's the difference? I like the winter. And again, I'm not a lonely person. I, 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 get, I have plenty of 
you know, contact and company and whatever. But I, but I, um, I just, I just have so much I want to do. <laughs> I'm so busy. Right. It's so funny, and I'm so busy um, all the time. So, um, yeah, um, <laughs> yeah. So that's that's kind of where that yeah. <laughs> that is. Well, at. you certainly have a lot of virtual. Um, followers on your blog. I do, I do. Uh, And that was fun. That was an instinct at the very beginning. I thought, well, what am I going to do here? What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And blogging was kind of, you know, surging upward in awareness. And I thought, oh, I'll start a garden blog. I know a lot about gardening. I have, you know, I have a garden. I can take pictures. I love to take pictures. And I go outside and take pictures. So I'll just do that. That'll get me started doing something. This was before I had written a book proposal and so forth. And I did, and it's just really, really grown. It's been um, pretty wonderful, and it's growing again. I can see the year-over-year statistics already. That's great. It's over 100,000 followers a month now, isn't it? How many? Over 100,000, is that correct? Yeah, they're exactly, yes. I, it's like, you know, it'll be in the spring and so forth. It'll be, um, uh, that, this year it should be close to there. So yeah, okay. it's 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 um it's interesting, you know, because again, of course, it started with just a couple people, yeah. and it's not like I advertise or anything. So no. um, it's just been really wonderful to have people uh, through word of mouth and and so forth and experiences like talking to you today. You know, people say, "Oh, I've got to check that out," and then they come and then they say hello, and then they add something to the conversation, and I learn that way, and that's really, I mean, selfishly, um, it, it, it's it's good to know what other gardeners are thinking or if you write about a subject and they give you their way of doing it yeah oh let me look into that you know someone tells you oh i propagate this this way or oh i i take care of this this way or this is when i cut this back oh no i don't cut it back till now you know this kind of thing it's wonderful to have that um, conversation that I can benefit from too. Keeps me learning. Yes, right? yes, and that's that's the amazing thing about gardening as a profession, as a hobby, and as just a passion. You you need like a thousand lifetimes, <laughs> Margaret, to learn everything you want to learn. Oh, you know? I agree, and and it's really it's really kind of art and <laughs> yeah. science and yeah. instinct all mishmashed together. There's no exact right way to do anything, and um, and plants continue to surprise us. You know, things oh, that aren't indeed. supposed to happen, happen. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm going to get some <laughs> ugly surprises because we had that ferocious October snowstorm. I had almost two feet, yeah. and I lost a lot, a lot, a lot of old woody plants, 13 shrubs and three trees in October. Wow. So I'm afraid some of the ones that didn't literally fall down or get broken in half, I'm afraid some of them are, you know, they look upright, but they're probably half dead. I mean, who knows? Yeah. And that's the beauty of gardening is that you can remake it. That's why we're always in it every day, you know, working know. a little bit at it. Um, I wanted to tell our audience that you are going to be speaking um, here in, in New York. Is that right? In March at the James yeah. Beard Foundation? I will at the James Beard Foundation. And I have one coming up next week in Pleasantville, which is just outside the city. So there's always on awaytogarden.com. Um, there's a, my events calendar for the year, and it's a great place to check in if people want to try to connect in person, come to a lecture or whatever. So. Yes, and I highly recommend the book. I read it cover to cover. 
Um, so please, you know, get in touch with Margaret via her uh, website or blog. Margaret, it's been great to have you on the show. Thank you very much. It's so nice to finally meet. Yes. <laughs> well, you've been listening to Heritage Radio Network and to We Dig Plants. Thank you to Jack Inslee, our intrepid producer, and to our sponsors. Please join us on our Facebook fan page, Groundworks Inc., We Dig Plants. We would love your feedback, and we'll be posting a link to Margaret's blog and website, awaytogarden.com. Thanks for listening, and see you in the garden. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening.